Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. They wear an electric fillet knife on their belt daily in case impromptu cleaning of a hundred sakalot pops up. Hashtag get psyched. Hashtag you can do this. Hashtag maybe. I once saw a hippo chase a 30-foot double-decker cruise boat. Uh-huh. And, and the boat blinked first. And my personal favorite, the Bomac Fish Whisperer Floating Fish Bill. Bent! Good morning, degenerate anglers. Welcome to Bent, your trusted source for all the latest, greatest scents, attractants, fish oils, holy waters, and chum to dress your favorite mayfly parachutes. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and I never fish. <laughs> At least I, I never fish dry flies anyway without first dunking them in a vial of holy water. <laughs> it's, it's the only way I can inspire confidence in my technical trout fishing game. Listen, man, my my mom never without holy water. Really? My entire yeah, do my entire life. There's been a, a vial or two in the linen closet, like in case someone's new car needs to be blessed. Oh, I'm not, okay. Yeah, I'm not kidding. So it's like a she it's like to, for protection. Yeah, yeah. And like, she's not overly religious either, but there's always, and like, I'm not kidding. Like she'll come out and and like sprinkle it on the tires. Like you got a new truck. Let me sprinkle some holy water on the tires. That's, that's great. We don't have any of that kind of ritual where I grew up. You you don't know what to say. You're like, yeah, that's, uh, that's great. No, I think that's fascinating. Like I, I I genuinely wish we had something like that where we believed enough in something. We'd be like, yes, I was making a joke about holy water and dry flies. You're like, no, no, that's a thing, dude. Next time you have a sore throat, I'll have her ship you some. You rub it on your throat. Goes away. Got COVID? Holy water. Slug it. Uh, anyway, look, we all have we all have rituals, right? Um, and it's another one of those things that seems to unite all anglers. And we may not all have yes. the same superstitions, but we anglers all seem to cling to some form of personal faith or another. And I have to ask, like, do you have a particular do you have a thing you do or don't do when you go fishing? Hmm. Uh, you know, I did like when I was younger, I, I definitely did. Like I had a lot of those mm. things. And, and I think primarily from what I can remember, I was all about the lucky apparel. Uh-huh. You know, like I, I had my lucky hat. I had mm-hmm. lucky socks. I had a lucky mm-hmm. shirt. <laughs> uh, and you know, I would change the combinations depending on what I felt like I needed that day. 
I don't remember pants, underwear, or shoes having any special <laughs> mysticism, and I don't no. know why. But like all other articles of clothing were fair game, and they were they were important, and they were specific, and they had like certain things that I did mm-hmm. for them. I actually had a, a lucky pin that I would wear and hmm. that I have since given to my son. But anyway, these days it's not so much what I wear. It's like, it's, it's interior. Like I got to get my head right. Yeah, no, it is. It is like, that sounds stupid, but it's like, I I really feel like, like I need to find a sense of confidence and certainty that like, I'm going to catch a fish Mm -hmm. and, and Mm -hmm. on those days that are long and slow and I'm just like not feeling it or I'm struggling. And, and if, if I get the sense that that, that confidence is wavering, Mm -hmm. I will stop fishing and I'll like take a couple minutes and get myself together and try and mm-hmm. find that sense of confidence. And I think that's these days, I think that's as close as I get to having, having a ritual or a superstition is that I got to yeah. have my head right. Yeah, no, I identify with that. I do that all the time where you just have to stop and pause and like collect yourself yeah. and figure out why you're fishing like shit. <laughs> um, it happens too often. Matter of fact, but I used to have, I used to have a lucky Adidas hat. Yeah. And I wore it for years. Right. And then I lost it in Aruba. But I still kept catching a bunch of fish on that trip after I lost it. So then I never bothered with another lucky fishing hat. I was like, F the lucky fishing hat. Apparently it wasn't that lucky. Dude, so I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm going to cut you off. I'm sorry. But I, like, you just reminded me of something because my last lucky fishing hat, and this is super geeky and will say something about me, but it was like my, my Little League All Stars hat mm-hmm. that I held mm-hmm. on to until it, and it finally disintegrated. I found it at my yeah. mom's house a few years ago and it had, it had come apart. It was done. Oh, dude, this Adidas hat was like. It needed to be burned or thrown out. Regard, I mean, it was literally, it was disgusting. Yeah. I mean, it was like brown from years of sweat, but I thought it was lucky. Now, I don't, I don't do lucky clothes anymore. I don't do good luck charms. However, I do firmly believe, um, how do I say, that getting lucky the night before a fishing trip makes you luckier the next day. Really? Uh, I, I have not experienced. I like this idea. I'm, I might have to uh, adopt but, this. I like it. Okay. But if you like that, here's the other, here's the other part of it. And don't ask me where this all comes from. <laughs> I also believe that pleasuring yourself the night before a trip is the kiss of death. Really? And now that that's been said, many people, including you, might hate me because you're going to adhere to it. And you're thinking, well, I don't buy that. But just in case he's right. What if yeah. he's right? What if he's right? What if oh, I'm man. right? I'm, so I'm, sorry, I'm, but I'm, I'm gonna have to think you, about that. You you brought up superstitions, so yep. that's just that's that's anyway. A lot of us we adhere to very specific superstitions. Of course, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get off the the pleasuring yourself and go to the <laughs> banana thing. We all know about the well, it's kind of the same. Uh, the banana thing, <laughs> um, you know, that's it's bad luck to bring bananas on the boat. That's probably the biggest yeah. overarching one. I yeah, no, I mean that that I'd say that I think that's the most common fishing superstition, right? Like if. It's mm-hmm. bad luck to bring bananas on a boat or bad luck to bring bananas fishing. And people get super, super heated about that. Oh, one, yeah. Dude. Like, I know guides and charter cat, like a lot of guys and charter captains who will lose their minds mm-hmm. if someone brings a banana on their boat. Yeah, so do I to the point where I almost find it obnoxious. Like, not the belief per se. Like, if you believe that, that's fine. Yeah. But I know a handful of guides, like their 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 boats and trucks are like slathered with those no banana stickers mm-hmm. with this with a slash through mm-hmm. them. Oh yeah, and I'm I'm like, come on, that's not a, that's like a salt life sticker. Like you really need that <laughs> on your boat, you know? But um, there are some captains that will go so far as to demand their clients throw anything even banana related overboard. I've seen it. I've seen dudes throw banana boat sunscreen off the boat. They don't like Banana Republic shirts. Um, then the, I have my personal favorite is there. There's a whole legend 
about slicing the tags off Fruit of the Loom underwear. Never mind the fact that Fruit of the Loom does not now, nor has it ever had a banana on any of its tags, okay? And I got so deep into that, I actually wrote about it. There's a whole story about it you can check out. It's a barroom banner piece on TheMediator.com. It's called, Did Fishing Superstition Change Your Underpants Forever? That is, seriously, go read that one. It's a deep dive and a head trip. It's a really deep dive. And (laughs) I thought I knew all there was to know about this whole bananas (laughs) and fishing and boats thing. And then you wrote that article and I was like, oh, Shit, there's a lot I don't know. (laughs) But what you don't cover in that one, and understandably so because it's been covered, is is the the real backstory on why bananas on boats are bad luck. Right. Mm-hmm. And 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 the, the, the truth of that is that, that nobody really knows. Like there's no definitive answer. Yeah, there's a few yeah, there's a there few, are a few ideas, different ones, yeah. right? Like so so most people think it has something to do with the banana boats of the 1700s that used to that, that were that they were carrying the fruit from the Caribbean islands up to the mainland of North America and and even Europe. And some people say that boats carrying various, like varied fruit cargo would spoil if they had bananas on board. And so sailors began to assume that bananas were bad luck because this was before people understood, you know, the whole ethylene gas thing that bananas (laughs) give off, which actually does make fruit spoil. They're like, it's the bananas are bad luck. No, it's science. But um, there, there's another story that sailors would actually slip on the banana peels and hurt themselves like a freaking cartoon, which I don't buy. <laughs> there's like this whole host of theories out there if you really want to get into this. But the one that I like best, the one that I've always told people, uh, is that banana bunches back then, the big bunches of bananas would carry venomous spiders that were hidden in the nooks and crannies. And like yep. at night, those spiders would would crawl out and bite the crew in their sleep and kill them all so so other ships would come upon these banana boats just drifting at sea with the whole crew dead that's always been my favorite explanation too and it's a creepy image isn't it yeah it's very hard it's very creepy yeah i like like that one (laughs) so there you go uh do with that info what you will but just remember that some people take the banana thing dead serious and it i mean it really could be worse as far as universal fishing beliefs go um that one's I mean, it's pretty innocuous, really. Yeah. I mean, we could all believe in, in you know, uh, blood sacrifices to improve your fishing luck. We're not quite there, so. <laughs> I'm just, all I can picture right now is Major League and getting Joe Boo a chicken. Uh, and that would be much messier. You know, that would be if, if like, if, if captains were like, we're not catching anything, something's got to die. That would be, uh, I think that would give fishing a really bad name. And speaking of blood sacrifices, uh, Joe is going to open you up to the history of a term for a piece of fishing gear that's not as common as it once was. Webster's Dictionary defines fish as... This week's word is priest. And I'm not talking about Father Guido Sarducci here, nor Father Karras and Father Marin, though you could say the priests we're talking about exercise the spirits out of fish, and very rapidly and humanely at that, minus all the pea soup and cuss words. A priest is a small bat, usually shorter than a nightstick, though they come in many different sizes and they're crafted specifically for dispatching a fish with a sharp blow to the head. It's called a priest to play on the notion that it's giving a catch its last rites. Now, if this sounds like some backwoods tool whittled in an Appalachian holler, you could not be more wrong. The priest's origins date back many centuries to Europe, where they were as common and necessary a piece of on-the-water kit as your fish brain app and line cutters ring are today. Furthermore, priests were handed down through generations, held in the same regard you might hold a knife made in a local forge by an expert bladesmith. 
In many upper-class angling circles in Britain and Scotland and France, fine handmade priests were presented as gifts. But even if you were poor, if you fished, you probably made yourself a trusty priest. So how do I know all this? Well, believe it or not, I own a book called A Collection of Fishing Priests by British author Dave Watson. It's not a very fat book. In fact, it's more like a magazine. And when I received an unsolicited complimentary copy years ago, I said to myself, who the hell writes a book about fishing priests? Now, here we are today, and you're thanking me for being such a hoarder. In fact, I spent 47 minutes digging around in my frigid attic to find this book. That's how much I love you guys. Anyway, traditional priests were made from a wide variety of woods, including walnut, rosewood, boxwood, and maple. But one of the most popular woods was lignum vitae. Lignum vitae, also known as guayacan, is actually the national tree of the Bahamas. It only grows in the Caribbean and was exported like crazy to Europe starting in the early 16th century. Lignum vitae makes a superb priest because it's incredibly strong, hard, and dense. In fact, Europeans use lignum vitae for so much that these days it's actually classified as an endangered flora. Now, similar to knife making, old school priests featured all kinds of unique embellishments and personal touches, such as brass heads and pewter bands. Some of the most extravagant priests in Watson's book which date back well before the 1800s, are made of scrimshawed elephant and narwhal ivory and bear initials and royal crests. Now, if you're wondering when this whole priest thing died off over there and they got with the catch and release program, mm, they kind of haven't. In fact, Hardy still manufactures trout priests today, except they have chrome-plated brass thumping heads, an EVA foam grip, and an anodized aluminum handle. Those barbarians, right? Wrong. The fact of the matter is, the priest stems from what many would call a smarter and perhaps even classier angling ethic than we have in the U.S. Even today, there are many European trout and salmon fisheries, including within Germany's Black Forest, where our beloved brown trout came from, where catch and release angling is strictly forbidden. In the mind of the Brits and many other European countries, you do more to protect the fish by making it mandatory to kill your first one or two and stop fishing instead of fighting and releasing, say, 20 fish in a day. It was, and in many cases still is, the norm to simply catch you a salmon or two, give them a quick bonk with your priest, and walk away, back to the cottage to enjoy your fresh catch and not molest any more fish that day. But that's just not how things are done here, which is why we don't carry priests on trout streams. Now, you can buy them here. They're just not called priests. We have uber-American versions, such as the Offshore Angler Aluminum Fish Bat, the West Coast Thumpers Fish Bonker, and my personal favorite, the Bomac Fish Whisperer Floating Fish Billy. Most of these can be purchased through Bass Pro Shops or Cabela's. None of them are what I'd call heirloom quality. Love that one, man. That was, that was, I'm, I'm that glad was you picked one. that one. That was that a fun was a one good, to do, yeah. That was a good choice. You know, when, when, I, was a, when I was a salmon guide, I actually made my own priest out of a chunk of caribou antler that I found hmm. in the tundra. And like there was a there was a bench grinder at the shop at the camp and I, I cut it down to this perfect fish beating size and I would tuck it in my waiter belt and carry it around and I was I was 100% confident that it made me look like a badass. Hmm. That's neat. I'm sure you did. <laughs> It's cool. It's a cool story. Uh, and since we're on the subject of people thinking they look badass, let's let's take a look at an awkward moment in angling. 
Why don't you take a picture? It'll last longer. <laughs> this week's awkward moment in angling comes to us from Alex Reed. And, and, and quick warning, uh, we're about to make fun of a small child. And, <laughs> and it was one thing when we were making fun of childhood fishing photos of each other, but I don't actually know this dude. Like, do you know? No. Is this someone you know? Nope. Because sometimes nope. we've done nope. pictures. No, you don't know. No. Nope. All right. No, I will, if it's a buddy of mine, I'll shout it out. Alex, I do not know you. So this is just some random kid. And so I I, I struggle. I'm struggling with this one. I'm, I'm like, Why? I'm searching my conscience. Well, like, Why? I, am I the kind of person who's going to insult a young boy? It looks like he's like seven or eight years old, man. Oh, God. I got to. No, I'm going to. I got to. I got to interrupt your melodrama here because we can just get on with it. <laughs> First of all, yes, we are the kind of people who will tease small children to amuse ourselves and others. But the 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 point we have to make here is um, the the child is Alex, who is now a grown ass man who sent us what he referred to as a this is like a family classic, right? Yeah. This is like the one that the family goes back to. Yeah. He sent this to us and asked us to make fun of it. So it's okay. It's all, all it's right. fine. I, I mean, we're good. okay. You're we're good. Fine. Yes. <laughs> I, I was I was just I was working through it. I was trying to like yeah. figure out if it was okay with me. I appreciate you. You were, you, yeah. <laughs> you were taking a really long time. Nobody cares. Nobody cares nobody about cares my how conscience. You feel about what, no, no, nobody cares. Okay, we're doing it. Yeah. So let's get to this photo. Okay, the year is 1998, and I know this because um, this photo comes with that. It's from that era when the date in the picture was just automatically like digitally stamped, the orange digitized mm-hmm. in the in the bottom left corner of the photo. Yeah, like I, it looked you know, like like a like a digital clock. Yeah, like it's that same kind of kind of type. There face. are some young people who are probably because I remember you could you could turn that off in some cameras, but like my mm-hmm. mom could never figure out how. Yeah. So all of our photos, like in all the albums <laughs> from that certain era, they're yeah. the bright yeah. orange date stamp. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, in this shot, young Alex stands proudly in his uh, mismatched camo t-shirt and hat, miniature work boots, and jeans. Like he's just finished a day of illegal child labor, sweeping floors at the local steel mill or something like that. <laughs> oh man, we, we're we're digging a new low, and and uh, I'm gonna it's keep okay. going a- after yeah. after that day of under the table, less than minimum wage work. It appears Alex blew off some steam at a local pond. Mm. So one of the things that catches my eye about this photo is the rod he's holding. Right, it's it's it does have that closed faced. Zebco style reel, yeah, you know, the, the 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 one that's yep. the, that comes standard on your your Spider Man Walmart fishing outfit that all kids mm-hmm. get, and and you know you know that rod you use it to yep. like it doesn't do anything but catch little dinker panfish or stalker trout. That's what that rod is for. But this rod that Alex's holding is not that rod. This rod has serious backbone. Like that, look, I know you're looking at it. That thing could handle like a big bass. Yeah. Or, or a respectable catfish. It's got it's got some serious stout to it. Yeah, I noticed the same thing. And it, it it for people who might not realize this, you like associate closed you know push button reels with little kid rods, mm-hmm. but they actually make giant ones like Zebco. Like there are people out there who prefer that for their catfishing, like grown people. Yeah, you I think that's this that's what this rod looks like to me, like a grown yeah. person's push button catfish setup. Yeah, and see, I don't think I, I this was not Alex's first fishing rod. And in, in fact, the rod itself, it's a good two feet taller than little Alex yeah. shot. And um, he would have had to have been like a pretty skilled kid to cast that thing, and also like a like a serious danger 
to anyone right? <laughs> standing within a six foot radius. Yeah. Right. It's like a big that, rod I, for a little, I, for a little I picture tight. a little kid flinging that thing around <laughs> and I'd, I'd be scared. And, uh, Alex's mom or dad or whoever took him fishing was either very brave, very quick, or just not that smart. But whatever that fishing mentor may have lacked in self-preservation, they, uh, they definitely made up for in fishing knowledge because dangling from the end of that line is just an absolute slab. Of Total slab. Yeah. Total slab. It's, it's the, the thing's eight inches minimum, maybe over 10. And uh, yeah. Alex hadn't yet learned the art of extending his arms out away from his body to make it like, look even more impressive. But even though he didn't know how to do that, it still looks big. It like, does. It's friggin' huge bluegill. It huge. does. And I got one thing I cannot figure out is where this picture was taken. Okay. Mm. So Alex is standing on, on paving stones in front mm -hmm. of some, some wood lattice. And it's, it looks like he's in front of a house, not right. on a dock or at the edge of the water, but the fish is still hooked. <laughs> so either this house borders a body of water or they, they, they went fishing, they came home, and then they reattached the fish to the hook to stage the photo. Mm, yeah. See, I don't think I don't think this is staged because at Alex's feet, right, you could you could see a pile of maybe ten other fish, mm -hmm. most of which are also stud bluegills, but a couple look like pretty decent bass, largemouths, yeah. right? So if you were a kid and you could either pose with a ten inch bluegill or a two pound bass, mm. come I, come on. You're pick yeah. you're picking the bass every day. Yeah. Or you're gonna put all the fish on a stringer and hold them all up together. Like it's you think if they were if they were gonna pose it, they would do the full stringer shot as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why not? All right, that's a good point, but I'm, I'm still I'm still not convinced because mm. it seems to me like like those fish, the ones you're talking about, it looks like they just got dumped out of a bucket, right? They're just kind of laying in this in this in this pile, and there's this puddle that's spreading across the paving stones. So I'm I, mm -hmm. I think a bucket drop <laughs> happened right there. That could be the case, or or. Maybe that puddle has another source because if you focus just slightly north of that impressive spread of fish and look closely at Alex's jeans, you will notice that he quite recently, or perhaps is still in the process of pissing his pants. <laughs> and that's that's the clincher. <laughs> oh, it's true. It's true, dude. Like when you first sent me this picture, I I didn't see it. It's I subtle. really didn't. It's I was subtle. Like, it's like it's like one of those when you see it means when you see it. <laughs> Like, what are you doing? Why would we make fun of this cute kid <laughs> holding all these sweet fish? And then, uh, and then I realized he had um, mictrated himself. Uh, That's a fancy I say, word. I, I, I got it from the Big Lebowski. I got to say, though, uh, the best part <laughs> for me is the look on his face because I don't think that kid's feeling any shame oh, whatsoever. No. I no, think he's just like, no. I pissed myself. None, zero. He's he's staring straight into that camera with a self satisfied grin, like almost in defiance. Like, I pissed my pants. I also roped a pile of hogfish today, and that's <laughs> that's dedication. Damn it! Oh, I'm I'm kind of sad we used the the Billy Madison pants being clipped last week because I uh, know we could have doubled up. Yeah, Nobody would have complained. We. <laughs> I'm also realizing <laughs> we've run two pants being stories. Two weeks in a row, uh, and that says something about our level of maturity. But this one was too good. We had to. We yeah. had to do this one. It does. It does say something about our level of maturity. But um, it definitely says something about Alex's general sense of self confidence. First, that he posed for this photo, and second, that he proudly sent it to us to be publicly called out. So, 
Thank you, Alex. Glad we got to share this family classic here. If you want to see this glorious photo for yourself, go check out me or Miles' Instagram accounts. That's at watermiles and at joe.sermelli138. Thank you, Alex, for proffering yourself at the <laughs> bent altar ridicule. <laughs> if you have an awkward fishing photo that you'd like to offer up for consideration, please send it to bent at TheMeatEater.com. Your sacrifices benefit the good of us all. Indeed, they do. And we're going to continue benefiting the greater good right now because it's time for Fish News. Fish News! That escalated quickly. All right, this week before we uh, kick off news, I've got to give a shout out to listener Eric Rude today because this has got to be one of the most whacked out things I have I have ever heard. All right. Now do you remember you remember a while back we did that news story on odd baits? You remember that, yep, right? Yep, yeah. absolutely. And then we, we asked our fine listeners to please let us know the weirdest thing maybe they've ever used as bait, right? Yep. And we we've gotten some, but there haven't been any that I was like, Oh, I never thought of that one. I mean, it's oh. been stuff like cigarette butts and and things like yeah, yeah. 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 Forget all those because this is the <laughs> this is the this is the ender right here. Okay. <laughs> okay. So all Eric right. uh, hit me up on Instagram, right? And he wrote when I was 11, I had my tonsils taken out and asked the doc if I could have them. No. He looked at my mother and she said, he's his father's child, but go ahead. I later took said tonsils out and caught a couple channel cats on them in a local creek. Now, I had the same look on my face you do right now when I read this. And of course, I was like, dude, is this real? Are you serious? This really happened? And he's like, full scout's honor, man. I caught channel cats on my tonsils, and then Eric, and then Eric also pointed out that if any of you recall the photo that ran on the meat eater Insta page of a guy that shot himself in the arm, he was shot in the arm with a crossbow. That was him. Crossbow bolt in arm guy was also Eric Rude, who used his tonsils for catfish. Eric, you have led an interesting <laughs> life. So I was like, I, I have to. I, I mean, I believe him. He said he wishes the catfish he caught were bigger. There's no photos, but apparently <laughs> the tonsils did not yield very big bait pieces. I guess an 11 year old's tonsils are like not are kind of small. Yeah, those are not big chunks of meat. Those are I, I, I can see that. And your face, your face I right applaud now. the creativity, <laughs> man. I do. I'm just thinking it through. I'm like, what else is? What else could be done with that? I'm, I'm going to leave it alone, though. I, well, I like I think, that. I think one of the funniest aspects is if that was me and I had my tonsils out and asked, keep my mom would be like, "Are you out of your mind? Absolutely not. It's ridiculous. Like yeah. my mom wouldn't have let like let me keep my tonsils. No, I don't. I, I don't know what my mom would have done. I, I'm trying to think it through. I think she would have looked at me with the look that I've got on my face right now. Like, what? Why? I'm like, what do you put right. those in? A glad bag? You wrap them in gauze. Like, how do you get those home? You, were they in the freezer for a time with the the the? I'm sure frozen they were. peas. They had to have been. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Eric, that was that was trippy, man. Um. All right. So I think uh, that concludes shout outs this week. Unless you have anything, no. I, I'm going to reserve my time for for my news stories because I got I got two that run a little long this week. Oh, so I'll, I'll, I'll reserve my time. Okay. All right. Then we can uh, we can move on here to the uh, real and actual at least sort of news and remember this is a competition <laughs> miles and i do not know which news stories the other guy found at the end of this the uh magnificent phil with his sidekick ps5 will weigh in and declare a winner and as soon as he's done we're gonna hear from all y'all's favorite mr lance v you have the floor you are up begin excellent all right and and i'm gonna kick off with 
you kind of you kind of set me up with that idea of pseudo news because okay. uh, the story that I'm going to talk about has gotten some decent coverage already okay. in other news sources, but really as pseudo news, and I'm going to try and try and shoehorn it into something valid. I'm going to, and, and mm. focus on fish and fisheries. So you may have heard about the invasive hippos in Colombia, right? Okay. Did you catch this one? Uh, you know, I, I remember a jingling of that, but I, right, well, I, I'm very not well versed in the invasive hippos. So <laughs> <laughs> to give, to give, to give a, some basic context here if, for those who aren't really paying attention yet, hippos native to Africa, not South America. Right. right. And, and, and they got there thanks to the infamous drug kingpin, Pablo Escobar. So <laughs> Escobar created his own kind of like Noah's Ark at his estate. Yeah. with exotic animals from all over the world. And then after his death in 1993, the Colombian government took over the place. And the vast majority of all those animals got relocated to zoos. But the four hippopotamuses were allowed to remain, mostly because capturing and transporting them would have been like really difficult and expensive and dangerous. Mm -hmm. They're just like, leave the hippos there. They're fine. It's cool. <laughs> so over the past few decades, those hippos have thrived. And now, from the original four, there are an estimated 80 to 100 of them. And Ooh. they're no longer confined to the ponds to on Escobar Escobar's land. former property. To Escobar's, exactly. Escobar's drive-through uh, safari. Yeah, they, they got out. At least half the population has relocated to the Magdalena, Colombia's largest and most productive river. The Magdalena runs the length of the western side of the country, and th and that's the, that's the populated side, like that's where all the major cities and towns and people. Right, are. right, right, right. It's it's basically it's like the Mississippi of Colombia. It's their it's their primary river, and it hosts a, a a pretty broad diversity of native fauna. Fish wise, we're talking like over two hundred different species, including a bunch of different cichlids and and like really cool ass catfish like you find all across yeah. South America. Yeah. And there's this this weird looking miniature pike thing that's like really tiny but it's like it's like a pike only shrunk. It's I don't know if you'd fish for it but it's cool. <laughs> and the marquee to us anyway, golden dorado. Right. But in a familiar story, the the fish in that river they're not doing so well. Researchers estimate that fish populations have dropped as much as 90% since 1975 for all the reasons you're you're probably thinking. Pollution, siltation, dams, yeah, illegal yeah. overfishing, you know the deal. So many news outlets seem to be covering this hippo story just because they want to use the headline, cocaine hippos. Yeah. And I get that. Like, that is a that is a frightening prospect. Hippos are, are scary on their own, just like in a natural state. The idea of hippos running around on like a coked up rampage as if they're finance <laughs> bros blowing off steam at Atlantic City, that's legitimately frightening to me. But let's be clear. The hippos have nothing to do with cocaine except for the fact that drug money brought them there in the first place. These are not coked up hippos. Don't believe all that. I'm less interested in the catchy headline and how the hippos got there in the first place than I am about how these invasive species are affecting the fishery and that ecosystem. And on that one, conclusions are mixed. So some researchers are understandably concerned that introducing non-native large animals could further stress a, a river system that's already struggling. Hippos are very, very good at moving nutrients from land to water. They're okay. herbivores that, that wander around on the land at night grazing on plants and grasses, but they spend the daylight hours sleeping, lounging, and pooping in the water. That poop carries nutrients, and as we've discussed lots of times before, too many nutrients in water can cause problems like algae blooms and cyanobacteria 
as well as lowering oxygen levels and, according to at least one study, making fish more vulnerable to predators. Hippos are also known as, as ecosystem engineers. By moving their massive bodies through muddy river channels and floodplains, they can change how water flows, creating or, or reshaping channels. Another concern is that they might displace or compete with native species like manatees and otters. But other researchers are not convinced that having the hippos around is necessarily bad for the Magdalena River, right? Keep in mind, this river is pretty screwed up by human intervention. Yeah. So some, some scientists hypothesize that hippos might be refilling a niche. South America used to have a variety of, of large herbivores, like uh, this one, it's, it's weird, the Toxodon, which I had never heard of before, and it, it actually <laughs> looks like a, a hippo, even though it wasn't. It's this, it might have been a semi-aquatic large mammal, and it, it was wiped out about 11,000 years ago, probably by overhunting. But again, that 11,000 years ago, what are we talking about? More contemporary examples would include tapirs, which are, are pig-like herbivores that also are found around the water. They love water, and they're, they, they're native to that area, and they're currently endangered. So hippos might, and I stress might, be performing functions that these other animals used to do, dispersing seeds, moving nutrients around, and, and grazing and controlling streamside vegetation. But there's one thing that hippos are definitely doing to help out fish in the part of the Magdalena that they're currently occupying. They are scaring the crap out of poachers. Oh, yeah. That's a twist. Okay. I was waiting for the punchline, but okay. Yeah, here it is. Yeah. Here it yeah, is. Yeah. Bef before the hippos started proliferating, illegal dynamite fishing was a pretty common occurrence around there. Like poachers would just show up and dynamite yep. whole sections of the river and take out all the fish. Yep. And now they're not doing that because hippos are straight up terrifying. Like, can you imagine that? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they have those cheesy nature shows that are like top 10 most deadly animals. And like, people always think it's going to be the lion or the liger or something. No, no dude, it's the hippo. Like, it's don't the hippos hippo. kill more people than all oh, that yeah. other shit? Yeah. Oh, yeah. By far. It's kind of like, you know, you know, like moose kill more people in Alaska than bears. Everybody's yeah. like, oh, gotta worry. About, it's the moose you gotta worry about. Hippos kill far more people than all those scary predators in Africa. They, they may not eat people but they sure do like to chomp, crush, and drown them Yes, with those huge tusks. Yes. And hippos are not afraid of anything. And I can speak to this from personal experience. My first job out of college was a teaching gig I had in Botswana. And even though I, like, I lived down what? south in the capital city. Wait, uh, what? a teaching gig in Botswana? Yeah. Yeah, when I was 21. That was my first job out of college. What? Go ahead. What have you not done? <laughs> I've said this before. Like Every time we do a new podcast, you were like, I was a... Uh, zipline instructor and I'm like Jesus I, did, I didn't do that but so anyway when I when I was when I was teaching down there like I lived in the capital city which is in the south but I would head up to the north to the delta area whenever I got some time off to go fishing obviously and I very quickly learned to be afraid of hippos like I, I once saw a hippo chase a 30-foot double-decker cruise boat uh-huh and and the boat blinked first like <laughs> the boat was the one that bailed out of that situation so I am far more wary of hippos than any other creature I've ever encountered when I was outside, like bears, sharks, no, hippos, dude. So far in Colombia, no one has yet been mauled, but it, it's kind of only a matter of time. Now, to, to sum this all up, in the past, 
I have talked about how I'm opposed to introducing new species to try and fix problems humans have created in systems balance. Like generally, I think that's a bad idea. So I'm probably going to take some heat here, but I'm, I'm kind of on board with these hippos colonizing and protecting this river. Like, all right, like I said, the river's in pretty bad shape already. And, and biologists think it's unlikely that the hippo population will get completely out of control because they're, they're geographically restricted in this one river valley. And you got the Andes mountains on the east that are a solid impassable barrier. So there's no danger of them getting into the Amazon, which would be a legitimate sure. disaster. Yeah. Yeah. So I just personal opinion on this one. I've, I've read a fair amount. I think I, I think the approach is like the scientists should keep monitoring the situation, which they're doing and see how it plays out. And like, if things get worse, if, if the manatees start dying off or, or the, the river chemistry gets all out of whack or the fish start disappearing even faster, kill the hippos. It's not like they're hard to find, mm-hmm. but in the meantime, I kind of say like, keep an eye on things and, and see how this one plays out. I kind of like the hippos guarding against the illegal fishing. I'm all for this, dude. Throw a few below the Conowingo Dam in Maryland. You won't have striper <laughs> poaching problems there anymore. All these guys with trout clubs in North Jersey get you a club hippo. Not a yeah. problem. You know what I'm saying? I like it. <laughs> I do, too. I, I didn't go there. There's a whole other story about how hippos <laughs> almost uh, became brought over to the Americas as a food source oh, way really? back in the day. Yeah, it almost happened, but thankfully someone thought better. They almost got brought over uh, to, to Florida. Here's a strange segue um, that I, I had nothing until you just said that. Uh, if you were, if they ever were to come here to Florida or wherever, and you had to fillet a hippo for the table, you might want an electric fillet knife. I would, and they're supposedly <laughs> delicious. I'm going to throw that out there, and I would definitely want a, an electric fillet hey, knife for, for l- hippo listen, meat. Listen, I knew a person who shall definitely go nameless that once swore that not in this country, but in another country where it was, where it was acceptable, he uh, once enjoyed some manatee, and he was like, it's delicious. It's out of control good. I believe it. It's out of Large control. Large herbivores, man. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we're not flaying any hippos that I'm aware of, uh, but listen up for everyone who, uh, who loves a good fish fry. And in this case, I'm particularly talking to my southern friends right now. Rapala is recalling 128,000 battery-operated fillet knives because them some bitches are catching fire. Oh no! This, yes. So this this comes to us uh, from the the Minneapolis Star Tribune, um, and it says a Twin Cities company is recalling 128,000 battery-operated fishing knives after a dozen or so caught on fire. So it's not like they're all catching on fire, but but enough to to make this a thing. Um, and of course, uh, Rapala USA is based in Minnetonka, which now for a second week in a row gives me license to say, why don't you purify yourselves <laughs> in the waters of Lake Minnetonka? Okay. Well done. This is a much less in-depth, poignant story than yours, but I'm going to continue on. Um, they issued the, the recall last week of these rechargeable fillet knives after it learned of batteries overheating when plugged into a charger not produced by Rapala according to the mm. U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Now, the knife in question here is the Rapala Ion, which which runs on rechargeable lithium batteries. And I don't own one. I've never used one, but I looked it up. And naturally, when you buy this knife, it comes with a charger. So the statement they made is a little unclear because I'm not sure if Rapala is saying this sometimes happened with the charger they provide but did not produce. In other words, it's not like a Rapala brand charger that comes with it. They buy chargers and give you one with the knife. Or are they saying this issue is occurring when a charger that is not the charger they provided is being used to charge the knife, which is also possible 
because I'm only speaking for myself here, I have a ridiculous habit of losing charging cords, particularly yep. those like when when they're for shit that I don't use often. You know what I'm saying? Like yep. I I I have at least three rechargeable spotlights in the garage. I can't find the damn cord for any of those. You know, like my 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 poor kids have been enjoying a Power Wheels ATV for a year. It's like it's like inching along the living room. I don't know what I do with the cord, right? So, so I could I could totally see some fish dudes like getting all excited about the knife, charging it, using it for a while, losing the cord, and just like Jerry rigging it to a lawnmower battery. You know, what I mean, Dude, I have I have good friends in Louisiana, right? Like they wear an electric fillet knife on their belt daily in case impromptu cleaning of a hundred sock a lot pops up. But um, if something needs charging uh, and you, and you have no cord, then boys will also figure out how to charge it for you. So I'm, I'm not really it's it's, it's very unclear. Uh, but I find it mildly funny because these aren't cheap, right? They cost a hundred bucks. No. Like they're a good yeah. knife. So you could see somebody getting this, you know, some meat fisherman for Christmas and like, you know, walking out back with an Igloo 150 full of speckled trout, all excited. And that sucker's just melting on the cutting board. Um, luckily though, none of these fires have caused any injury or major damage. And Rapala is good people. And here's what they say. Anyone with one of these knives should stop using it immediately. Remove the battery and look for a white ETL safety certification label on the battery. And if it's if you have one of these and it's not there, contact Rapala and they will send you a free replacement battery so your knife does not burn up. They will hook it up. And if anyone in my area had this issue and just feels naked without their electric blade, holler at me because I have about six of them that I never use. So <laughs> the generosity at the end of that statement, not just from 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 Rapala, like care. making everything whole, but I you care. being like, I personally, I got care. you guys, I got you. Do you what? Do you do you use electric fillet knives? I have. I don't. So I don't want to go too deep into this because it could eat up some time. I'm. I. I really. I love something about using just a classic fillet knife, and and there is a a purest part of me that doesn't really like electric fillet knives. Having said all that, I. If you gotta cut up a ton of fish, they're super efficient. They're super fast. Okay. I don't. I don't have a problem with them. I don't like denigrate other people for using them. No. I just personally no. like a nice fillet knife in its and, and, standard form. And and we're on the exact same page. I, I like I get it. If you're a charter captain down south or tech and like yeah. you, like every day you have to do a mess of trout and reds, totally get it. I don't catch enough fish for that. Like I am just not that good. You know, like I can't remember the last time I brought home enough fish that I was like, oh shit, this is so daunting. I need power tools. And then if I have something like really special like a tuna, I don't want to rip saw through that. So like yeah. you, it's like delicate brain surgery. Like I want to feel the knife tip touch every rib. You know what yep. I mean? So yeah. there you go. Watch out. Don't let your fillet knife burn up. <laughs> Where are you going to go with that, Miles? Oh, gosh. That is <laughs> that is a hard one. I will say, before we leave it completely, uh, I, I I do still use the, the classic Rapala fillet knife. Oh, me too. Like super the expensive. straight up fillet knife. Absolutely. Yeah. That or that or a Dexter, baby. Those are the ones. I have always used them and I've always had good luck with them. They make so I'm glad to hear that they're standing by it, even if they may have made a, a little bit of a mess up there. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry 
if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? You need a brake light fixed? You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm going to harken back a couple weeks to a story that you were telling about the, the lower Susquehanna, I think. And, oh, and the, the flatheads and, on the lower yeah. Susquehanna. Gotcha. Right? And yep. like you were talking about how there were all these rumors of huge fish in that river, right? Not just flatheads, but all kinds of different fish and, and a bunch of the lower rivers around you. Yeah, I was going to say, not that one in particular, but all these eastern rivers with that sort of lower dammed end, it's always like, that's where the big ones are. If you right. Get them, yeah. And if you remember, my response was like, well, don't they sample yes. that river? Like like a total snooty <laughs> and jerk. I, and, and I said, no, and you, you were have like, to prove me wrong. Uh, yeah. uh, no, that's not a thing here. So, right, yeah. No, I'm not about to prove you wrong, not at all. But that got me thinking, right? And it, it, it helped me, like, it gave me a little context to get out of my my Western river focus. That Because, mm-hmm. like, most of the major rivers out here are very aggressively monitored and managed. Right. And, and I just, I, I got stuck in my own experience, and I forgot that's not the case in most places. <laughs> like, that's not the case most of the country. Uh, and it is here because the fish populations are just so valuable to local economies, right? They They... The management agencies are told, like, keep an eye on this because it's sure. worth a lot of money. Yes. Right? That's what yeah. they have to do. So in order to do that, management agencies rely on, on a technology that's been around since the 60s called electrofishing. And I, I know you're familiar with this, but but mm-hmm. other people might not be. Sure. And to, to vastly oversimplify it, like, it involves using these machines that create a low-level electric field in a small area of water. And the fish that are around are simultaneously stunned and drawn to the source of the current. So you, you stick these wands, these two wands into the into the water, and like it's crazy, man. A pool just these fish oh, just yeah. come to the surface that you oh, never I, knew. I've were done in it. 
I've yeah. done it. It's it's nuts. Yeah. It's insane. And then, you know, the biologists turn the, the and the techs turn these things on. All the fish come up. They, they net them. It's just like this crazy net game trying to get them before they flow out of the pool and throw them into buckets so they can, they can measure them, they can count them. And then off of that, they make estimates about the population of, of the river and how well the fish are doing. Mm-hmm. And right now, that's not only the gold standard for measuring fish stocks. It's just about the only way we know how to do it that makes any sense. Yeah. Right? Like, that's about all we got. Yeah. But it's really expensive. It's really labor intensive. Yep. And it does have some mortality. Like some fish do die from the shocking and the handling. Whitefish especially, man. I've seen I've seen whitefish hit that current and their gills explode. Like it's the weirdest thing. It's just like blood shoots yeah. out and they're I, done. I've only ever done it for trout. And while most of them are okay, like you get some tiny fingerling, like there's, there's casualties of war. Not yeah. many, and, but they're there. Right, and I'm not dogging on electrofishing. Like I said, it's a gold standard, and it's really important. Yep. But that those are just the realities. It's 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 super expensive. It's super labor intensive, and there there are some some casualties. So while electrofishing is is it's going to remain the most comprehensive tool for monitoring fish stocks, another option might be coming up soon. In the past couple of weeks, I found two studies that were published about using environmental DNA, known as eDNA, to detect fish in bodies of water. Right, so so fish, just like any other living creature, they shed their DNA into the environment around them, mm-hmm. and this technology allows researchers to just take a water sample and then test that sample for the presence of particular fish. Wow! So one study, which was out of Oregon State University, this one's focused on native fish, like desirable fish, and they found that they could use eDNA testing to track the presence of native cutthroat in headwater streams, which is a particularly hard thing to test for, right? Because they do make those electrofishing backpacks. Like you can carry them on your back, but carrying those things, those shocking packs with a crew of fisheries techs, like way deep into the yeah, mountains to, to cut see how far upstream. Sucks. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, it's rough. And so if this, like the, the idea behind this is, is that instead of having to do all that, you could just send one person up there to collect water samples all the way up and, and figure out where the fish are and where they aren't. And, and I want to, I want to stress that the researchers are very clear on this, that eDNA testing will not replace shocking surveys, but it offers a cheaper, easier complement, right? Like yeah. there's no, with, with, with this, with this method, with the eDNA, you can't tell the size or the condition of the fish. You just know that, that they're there. So yeah. it won't replace it, but it's an interesting compliment. Yeah, and, and I, see, I don't want to jump ahead because I don't know where you're going, but I, I, I have a lot of questions, which I'm sure there are no answers to, like dilution. Like how how far up in that system do you need to be to get the water? If I get it, if there's if there's cutties in the headwaters, how far down can I sample and still get an accurate read before all that DNA is, is diluted? I think it's pretty I mean? localized. Otherwise, it wouldn't tell them much, right? Like they know, hey, just in this stretch right here, gotcha. we know they're here. Gotcha. Um, and, and so that part, useful, interesting. But I also found another study out of Cornell, same week, that shows a, another way that fisheries managers might use eDNA. In that study, the authors were focusing on invasive species. Specifically, they were testing on round gobies, which are small fish that are originally native to Eurasia and then and they got into the Great Lakes in the 90s through a ship ballast and, and they just took over. And we're not gonna we're not gonna get into the the Gobi debate right now. We've we've touched on that before. I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll hit it again, but that's not the point of the story. The point is that just by testing water samples in lakes, they were able to determine the presence of gobies. Hmm. Not only that, the density of the Gobi population 
and even their origin and levels of genetic diversity. So like where these particular really? gobies came from and, and, and how genetically diverse they were if they just came from single source origins. And this could be really useful and cost effective for monitoring and stopping the spread of invasives, right? Just by taking a water sample and looking at it, scientists might be able to determine if non-natives are starting to get a, a foothold somewhere. And if they are, how fast they're re reproducing and with what level of success, right? So, so like one of the major issues that we see with, with specifically with things like gobies and zebra mussels is that they're, they're super small and they're, they're pretty well camouflaged, right? So by the time anyone actually sees them, they're probably everywhere. Or agencies right. have to be like crazy diligent and spend tons of money to monitor whether or not they show up, right? And this, this technology could allow those resource managers to get out ahead of, of invasive aquatic species and make targeted and effective mitigation plans. So that's where I see this being really cool. Yeah, I mean, that's very fascinating. Again, there's so many questions, though. I mean, it sounds like with the with the Gobi study, they can do so much with so little. But then I I, I immediately jump like to snakeheads. So if, if you have a a, a lake or, or whatever impoundment connected to a known waterway where they are, like how many snakeheads have to get in there before just a water test lets you even know they're there? You know what I mean? It's it's, it's I'm being rhetorical right now. But I just yeah. find that part fascinating. Like if two snakeheads get in there and it's a three acre body of water. Will they read like, how they seem to have refined that so quickly to gobies is pretty awesome. Yeah. Like that. And I'll tell you, I'm all for it just for, for safety reasons, because I've shocked fish twice in my life. And the first time I had to watch from the sidelines, cause I was the idiot that showed up with studded boots, studded metal studs <laughs> in his wading yep. boots. And they were like, ha, huh, you wore uh, the boots with the studs. You're going to have to stand over there on the bank. So um, Yeah. And then, then the second time I got the talk, like, if you feel your heart fluttering at all, please let somebody know. I'm like, you know what? Just, I just want to look at the trout in the bucket. You do the shocking. Uh, it's, it's a, I, I've only done it with the, the backpack ones and high mountain streams, which again, I can attest they're heavy and they're a real pain in the ass to carry up long trails. Um, I've never gotten to do the boat surveys. I've always wanted to. Yeah. No, me either. Me either. It looks super cool, but this is, uh. Man, there's so much. There's so much we can do with that in so many places. If that sort yeah. of takes a hold, um, if, if we start, if, if they the way, the speed at which this seems to be going, and the ways that eDNA, like just taking a water sample and knowing what's there and in yep. what density and where it came from, that could be very useful information. Absolutely. So the only tie-in I have is um, if you're a sushi fan. Perhaps one could argue that a, a shocked fish would taste more delicious as it was less stressed than one that fought on the end of the line. How about that? I like that. Was it's, creative. It comes up quick. That was, was creative. I, I, you know, I had to. I, you know, because I'm going to go culinary here a little bit, a little funky, um, not so fresh. And I'm going to assume that we do, in fact, have plenty of listeners like me, and I believe you that just go gaga for sushi, right? Mm -hmm. Like I am a sushi at. I just and and. Even though because where I live, I do get the opportunity to make my own on occasion. If we get tuna, bernita, or sea bass, or whatever, I'm just as happy to go to a restaurant or get the mysterious half-price sushi buffet sushi or sushi from the sushi department at ShopRite. I don't really care, right? I just love sushi. Um, now, I'm sure, at least I'm guessing, this was very different for you growing up in Hawaii. But for me as a kid in the Northeast, 
sushi was was very weird and like you really had to go out of your way to get it like to a restaurant in philly or new york right i'm i'm sure you you grew up not the case stuff. where i grew up right no. exactly but Sorry, now like, it, like little league picnics <laughs> so, well there you go okay so it was very different but now it's it's everywhere here right and um what people may not realize though is that the sushi we consume now is actually like a relatively recent invention first appearing in the early 20th century. And what we eat is sort of like a dumbed-down, pretty, more presentable version of traditional sushi. And I found this story on the site Atlas Obscura titled, To Make Japan's Original Sushi, First Age Fish for Several Months. And it's it's, a, it's actually a really fascinating article centered around a 75-year-old sushi restaurant in the city of Wakayama that specializes in making sushi in its ancient form. And they they call this sushi narazushi. And to make it, you pack rice into salted fish carcasses and let it age for months. And uh, the owner of the restaurant says, since you're fermenting it, the taste is more similar to cheese or yogurt than fish. Okay. And furthermore, at this restaurant, for fifty three U S dollars per taste, they will serve you thirty year aged sushi. And it says it's so decomposed. Thirty year. 30 year, and it says it's so decomposed that it's texturally more of a thick gruel than a modern day sushi roll. And it says, while some chunks of fish keep their shape, time and bacteria liquefies the mixture to the point that it can only be used as a condiment. Like you just put a dollop of it on some, on some rice. And it's said to be sour, pungent, and mildly sweet. Um, but this style of sushi, this fermented sushi, was first recorded in Japan in the 8th century. And of course, back then this was out of out of necessity, right? It was a it was a preservation method. Right, right. But now it's considered a delicacy because it takes so long to make. And fun thing I learned from this is that the word sushi is actually derived from the Japanese word for sour. Never knew that. Um, and there, there's so much interesting stuff about sushi history in this. It's quite a rabbit hole. But it's funny because it illustrates um, a, a full sort of coming around of sushi in that the OG. Sushi, you know, that was the nasty fish fermented for years. Then as refrigeration technology advanced, there was no need to ferment. And sushi, as as we know it, started as a legit fast food or street food in Japan. And then it became this weird, fancy, mysterious thing to us Americans for decades. And now in 2021, you can buy it at a gas station. So like it's kind of crazy like full how the circle. whole the whole pattern came full circle. And um, you know, I, I mean I love when someone says, like, oh, I usually get the California roll, but I got crazy and tried eel last time. Like, yeah. <laughs> Okay, try this. So for the sushi freaks out there that, you know, love a good piece of bluefin, OG sushi was nasty fermented fish paste. That's what I got. I'd try it, though. I I would be, if I was at that restaurant, like, I'd feel like I had to try that, just to say I did. Oh, yeah, I would definitely, I, I would try it. You lost me at gruel. That was the, that was the word <laughs> where I just kind of went, I didn't, I didn't interject that. That was right from the article. They said, yeah, it has the texture of gruel. But it's 53 bucks a taste. $53 for like a little pat of 30-year aged sushi. I mean, I'll try I'll try anything pretty much for the most part. But especially uh, if someone else is buying. If somebody's like, yo, dude, I'll treat oh, you to yeah. the $53 dollop of sushi. I'm Hook like, it up. Right. Let's see how it goes. Hook it up. So No, I, I mean that that was that was fascinating. Like I really appreciated that deep dive into sushi. I don't have a ton of follow-up, but like <laughs> no, that's that fine. was I'm I'm glad you did that. Like I I didn't know a lot of those things. <laughs> it's kind of an oddball thing, but like I, I you know, I love I love cutting my own sushi when I have the right fish for it. And we're so like sushi consumed 
But really, like we like it's new school stuff we eat. All these rolls and fancy soft shell oh, yeah. crab. That's all modern day. That's like, all that's Americanized not, stuff. That's yeah. not what they were eating back in the day. So uh, hopefully Phil likes sushi, and I impressed him with that. You also have I wrote I wrote it down this time. Okay, so we got coked out hippos. We got burning knives. Phil's got sushi to deal with. Um, and, and I'm, I'm very you curious. You skip eDNA of fish as a conservation tool? You just can skip over that one? I di- I forgot to jot that one. And then I was trying <laughs> to think of like the keyword to use in the last second. So that, <laughs> Phil, you can also consider that. Um, and we'll see, we'll see where we land with Phil. Miles Nolte, you're the winner. Disney just announced that they would be refreshing the Jungle Cruise ride to get rid of some outdated tableaus. And I think the solution here is simple. We just send 40 or so of these Escobar hippos up to Orange County, let the guests swim around, and hope for the best. That's a thrill ride. And on another note, while pleasuring yourself before a fishing trip may bring bad luck, uh, I can tell you that it only brings good luck to podcast editing. the land, to the boat, to the lake, to the sea, f***ing up the internet with your boy Landry! What's up, asswipes? It's me, your boy, Lance V, here yet again to help you take your status as an internet fishing legend up another level. I mean, you're not ever going to be a legend like me or Biggie John B, so forget that. But if this gets you four or five new followers that aren't your aunt or old summer camp counselor, I've done my job and you actually get to spend a day feeling good about yourself. Hashtag self-healing. This week's question comes from Jake B, who writes, Holy smokes, no more segments with Lance. I am forced to skip through it. If you must keep that segment, please do it at the very end so I can just stop the podcast when I hear him begin to talk. It is awful. However, I'm thinking about doing some Instagram Live videos. Any tips? Amazing question, Jake B. Insta Live separates internet fishing legends from losers. Going live means you can't do 63 takes of your shitty fishing tip video before posting. You think you're ready to mount up with Warren G and the regulators? We'll see. Hashtag get psyched. Hashtag you can do this. Hashtag maybe. Whatever you do, do not announce that you'll be going live days or hours before you actually go live. Just stream your raw stream of consciousness to the masses whenever the mood strikes. Promoting an upcoming live video just tells the world that you're worried nobody will show up, which ensures that no one will show up. If you're as brilliant as I think I am, the world will stop whatever the f*** it's doing to tune in. Hashtag trust me. Also, don't prepare anything. Spend the first 45 seconds stalling until one of your friends drops a stupid comment that will allow you to transform the entire live session into a group chat between you and your squad. Here's the secret. People don't tune in to live videos to learn something. They want to feel like they're part of your inner circle. And the best way to let them in is by prattling on about inside jokes and stories that only a small amount of people watching will understand. Anyway, that's it for me, your boy Lance V. Hope that helped you muster the courage of Snoop Lion, Jake B. Maybe I'll catch you next week, live from your mom's house, or if things go my way, live from the Admiral's Club at the Guggen Squad's private airport. This will come as a shock to uh, absolutely no one, but I have neither posted nor watched an Instagram live video ever in my life. Not surprising. Uh, Nope. It's actually extremely rare that I tune into anything live, and if I do, 
it's always by pure happenstance. Like I happen to be on Instagram when I get the alert that some friend of mine is now live. So mm-hmm. I'll just jump over, add a dumb comment, and right about the time when they read it and go, hey, Joe C's watching, I'm Xing out. <laughs> I'm gone. Because I find 99.9%. So, go ahead. What are you going to say? just there to mess with people's heads then. I, I like I'm that. The, I'm, I'm there to be a jerk. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Because I find most live social videos awkward to watch anyway. So I click over because I'm like, oh, I want to see how awkward he's looking and feeling yeah. right now doing this. And I find him 100% awkward to produce. I've done it yeah. a few times. Facebook Live. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. The whole thing seems super awkward to me. Yeah, unless you've got an insane following, in my opinion, it's the fastest way to figure out how many people are not tuning into your shit. Like, if you need something to make you feel better about yourself, do not go live on social media. Don't listen to Lance. Yes. That's my advice. Yes. <laughs> Those are words to live by for everybody. <laughs> and, uh, and that actually leads me nicely into our final segment of the episode where we give you the history of lures, baits, and flies that we live by. It's time for End of the Line. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. The Rattletrap wasn't the first commercially produced lipless crankbait. That honor goes to the Cordell Hotspot. But no one casually refers to lipless crankbaits as hotspots. No, they're called traps, despite the fact that several other baits of a similar design preceded them. The Swimming Minnow, Bayou Boogie, Pico Perch, and Water Gator all came out around the same time as the Hotspot and all featured the small profile, tight wobble, rapid sink, and high hookup ratio. But the Rattletrap was the one that made lipless crankbaits the dominant lures they are today. The Rattletrap was the brainchild of World War II veteran Bill Lewis. Lewis piloted B-24 bombers, which were called Flying Coffins by the airmen who flew them, Lewis survived 30 combat missions, some of which included supporting ground troops during the D-Day invasion at Normandy. He also flew voluntary support missions to resupply troops after the invasion. His heroism earned him the Distinguished Flying Cross Medal. Lewis then came home to pursue his education, first at the University of Alabama and then at the Chicago Academy of Art, from which he launched his career as a commercial artist. But Lewis was never really satisfied working for someone else. He had that hustle, also known as entrepreneurial spirit, depending on where you grew up. By day, he was drawing logos and headers, but by night, he was making bass lures in his garage in Alexandria, Louisiana. Weekends would find him selling those lures out of the trunk of his beat-up car at popular boat ramps. Much of the time, Lewis would end up parting with his spinnerbaits, plastic worms, and other lures below cost, just so he could get enough gas money to make it back home. This went on for decades, but Lewis remained undeterred. Legend has it that all changed one day in the late 1960s. Lewis and a friend were fishing a slow bite on Toledo Bend, cruising around the reservoir, trying to find some active fish, when they saw a crowd of boats piled into the Sabine River Channel. Upon investigation, they found that none of the boats were fishing, except one. The rest of the flotilla had gathered to watch in awe as the two anglers pulled in fish on nearly every cast. Bill recognized one of the anglers as a buddy he'd given some lures to and naturally asked him, What are they biting on? To which the guy replied, That silly rattling thing you gave me. You got any more of them? Not today, Lewis responded. Story goes that Lewis and his fishing partner both tied on some of his 
rattling lure prototypes and proceeded to experience action similar to what they'd witnessed in the channel, catching bass after bass despite the slow bite, some of which were in the eight-pound class. That afternoon, Lewis drove home through a rainstorm in his trusty Ford station wagon with wipers that didn't work. As he crawled back to Louisiana, his right hand on the steering wheel and his left hand manually operating the windshield wiper, a name for the new lure came to him. The Rattle Trap. The Rattle Trap's success proved not to be a fluke, and Lewis's business took off pretty quickly. By 1970, the Rattle Trap was a common lure, and by the 1980s, it was rivaling the plastic worm as the dominant bait in bass tournaments. The Bill Lewis Company grew into one of the only successful fishing companies to manufacture just one product. That's how good Rattle Traps were and are. They might be the most versatile hard bait of all time. You can rip them fast and shallow for aggressive fish or count them down and work them slow when the bite is sluggish. They're one of the few baits with a reputation for catching both large numbers of bass as well as truly big bass. Some pro anglers refer to it as an idiot bait, meaning that just about anyone, regardless of skill or experience, can tie on a trap and catch fish with it. Tommy Martin, a veteran pro, has been quoted as saying, a lot of pros wish the rattle trap had never been invented for that very reason. In modern bass angling, traps remain legendary for their effectiveness in heavy grass during cold months. Where I live in Texas, Martin said, from January through March, if you're not fishing them, you're not in business. I first discovered the power of the rattle trap fishing a peacock bass pond with my dad and one of his buddies. I will never forget when that guy, whose name I can't remember, tied on a trap, cast it out, and retrieved it. The sound emanated up from the water and through the boat. It somehow simultaneously hit high and low frequencies. The kind of sound you weren't sure if you were hearing or feeling. Like a grouse drumming. That sound is what defines the rattle trap. And to this day, I can recall it exactly in my head. The dude then proceeded to wail on peacocks all day while my dad and I flailed with our spinnerbaits and standard cranks. He finally let me use one. This weird rattling thing painted to look like some kind of a bait fish with blood dripping off the sides. Bleeding shad, he told me. All fish love that color. I started saving up car wash money the very next weekend, and the lures I went on to buy provided countless memorable days and fish. Bill Lewis died in 2005, but his signature bait continues to both win tournaments and help regular anglers catch their lifetime fish. Even kids like 15-year-old Tyler Getzman of Willis, Texas, who landed a 13-pounder on a trap in January of last year. I don't personally fish them as much as I used to, but when I do, there's only one color I reach for. The Bleeding Shad. Well, that about wraps it up, but for those of you now feeling pious, this week's Book of Fishing Revelations includes the worst trespass an angler can make against the fishing gods, the most sacred fishing tool in history, the fact that some of our listeners are as cool as Miles Davis, and the lure that first rattled the grassy crypt where big bass slumber in winter. It works in summer, too. Just saying. Mm -hmm. It's not just a wintertime lure. <laughs> anyway, keep those awkward photos, bar nominations, sale bin items, and general feedback flowing to bent at the meateater.com. Tell us when we screw up. Tell us when we strike a nerve. This week, we want to know about your fishing superstitions, especially the mm -hmm. weird or the funny ones. Lay it on us. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm hoping you'll send us some good ones. And if you do, they might get mentioned in a future episode, in which case we'll send you a special limited edition Degenerate Anglers Care Package. Um, if you don't believe in such things, you could still get some stickers if something you post using that Bent Podcast and Degenerate Angler hashtag on Instagram catches our attention. Mm-hmm. Like Big Brother or the Eye of Sauron, we're watching you. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. 